Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome, Judge Garcia, to Duke Law School, and welcome to Judgment Calls. It's really wonderful to um, to have you here. Well, thank you, David. It's great to be here. I really appreciate your hosting this, and I, I look forward to our discussion. What I like to do um, in these judgment calls, sort of interviews, is to give a sense of the full person. And one way of doing that is just to find out about your your childhood. Uh, you know where you grew up, and uh, wh whether you see anything in your growing up that uh, kind of brings you to to today. You know, was there anything in your childhood that kind of pointed you? Uh, to the distinguished legal career that you've had? You know, that's hard to say. I never thought there was, and, and it's a good question. Um, I grew up, uh, you know, my parents were from Brooklyn. Uh, born in, I was born in Queens. We moved out to the island. I really grew up on Long Island. They did not go to college. They were high school grads. No lawyers in my extended family at all. So I really never saw the profession in that way growing up. Um, went to public schools out on Long Island. And, you know, the thing that really influenced my life, and I don't know, you can say that influenced everything, was, you know, of course, your parents. And while they didn't go to college, they, you know, the old cliche, but they really stressed education. Um, and I found a teacher in, in high school, an English teacher, who really encouraged my interest in that and made me think, you know, that was something one I wanted to study and might be good at which is a nice gift, right? When you're in high school to have somebody get you to think that. So I would say that, you know, my parents were readers. Um, my teacher and other teachers there in the English department encouraged me to do that. So I think that kind of put me on a path uh, in college, which we can talk about, but um, which eventually wound up here. But as I think we'll see, if you look at my resume, it's never been a really a straight line, different jobs and different things I've done in life that, you know, ultimately landed me here on the Court of Appeals, but it's, it's hard to trace something back that far. But I would say that interest that propelled me on to study later uh, and study English first, I think that did influence uh, in many ways where I wound up. I think that's a great answer because uh, lawyers and judges, particularly judges, do so much writing and words are their you know, that's the, that's their toolbox is the words. I, I went to history graduate school. You went to, you got a master's in, in English literature. And I, I think there's a connection there. And law is, uh, it's a social science, but it's also one of the humanities, uh, the study of law. So what were you, th you, you, you had this teacher who encouraged you and you, you majored in, in literature and then you, you went on to get a graduate degree. So you were thinking maybe you would have a career that involved uh, writing in some way, I think maybe you were considering journalism. What, what was your plan at that point? Very good. Very good insight there. Um, so I, I went to Binghamton State School. A, a lot of my education was in, in, in ways driven by financial considerations. And Binghamton was a, a state school in New York and uh, had some scholarship money there. They had a very good English department. Um, and I, I really went not thinking, and I was asked at that time, by others, you know, what are you thinking? What are you going to do? But I, I really didn't have that career in mind from it. I liked it, uh, I enjoyed it, uh, the study of it. When I finished uh, my bachelor's degree though, I really felt I needed something else. Um, you know, it was a, a very general program I took at Binghamton and at William & Mary, it was a very focused, disciplined program, much more focused on research um, and longer 
projects. I had to write and defend the thesis. And I thought that was a very good part of my education. I felt I really needed it at that time. But then I, I left. I didn't go right to law school. I, I left and uh, tough market in the, in the early 80s, mid 80s. I wound up at a publishing house out on Long Island that published physics journals and oh. I copy editing. And to date myself, one of the journals I had was Soviet nuclear physics, you can imagine. Um, so I did that for a while. And then I did get a job as a reporter and an editor because you did everything for these local papers, right? At a weekly newspaper group out on Long Island. And eventually in that year and a half I was there or whatever, I was the editor of one of those weeklies and a monthly paper actually for the disabled community. Uh, and I enjoyed that. I, I learned a lot there. Um, you know, it was deadlines. It was getting sources and materials together and trying to put together in a very short amount of time some kind of logical project, right? Uh, something that made sense. And I think that helped me a lot later, that type of work. And I did that, as I said, for I would say about a year and a half, two years total I was out, uh, then I went to law school. Was it journalism that brought you to law? Just that kind of sort of investigating facts and writing and uh, or was there something else? You know, it's, it was it was really more mundane than that, I think. I, uh, you know, journalism is a tough business. You know it, right? Yeah. And I, I guess, as you would say now, I really didn't have much of a network, right? I had really very few connections. I saw it as a very tough field to, to get ahead, to get to work for one of the New York dailies or a daily somewhere else. So I, I, I felt like I just needed a reset. So I took the LSATs, you know, see, what am I going to do? And, you know, let's see how it goes. And it went well. So then I applied again. I was really looking for a place where I wouldn't take such financial risk. Um, and Albany gave me a full scholarship. And I, I really enjoyed it there. You know, I think law school in a lot of ways, as we were talking about, is reading comprehension and writing. And, and it was it built on those skills that I hoped I had been working to develop, and but in a completely new field, which I enjoyed. I, I really enjoyed um, law school. And I worked for a, a law professor, David Siegel, who, you know, was well known in New York as the, you know, wrote the textbook on New York civil practice. And I, I definitely enjoyed my three years in, in law school. I have in mind that Justice Jackson went to the Albany School of Law. Am I right about that? You are right. That's How about uh, that? In fact, you know, if we talked about judges you admire, I was going to throw Justice Jackson, obviously, in that list for many reasons. One of them, um, he went to Albany Law School um, and then went on, obviously, to many other things, including Attorney General and Nuremberg Prosecutor. Really admire Justice Jackson and his style, of course, is fantastic, unique, oh, yeah. fantastic. Unbelie unbelievable writer. He actually was the Nuremberg Prosecutor when he was a Supreme Court Justice. He, well, a little bit of a controversy at the time, but he was right. detailed. He was he detailed with that. Right. He, yeah, sort of stepped to the side. So you went to law school. You obviously did, you did extremely well. And your career... <laughs> has taken off like a rocket from then because you then went to one of you know one of the top firms in New York City Cahill Gordon and we'll we'll get to your clerkship in a moment you had one of the very best clerkships in the country right after that you went to Cahill you were an associate were you a litigator interesting um i went there my second summer uh, summer associate and i planned on being a litigator that's what i thought i would always do cahill let you split your summer I knew people from Albany who were there, who had recruited me, who were corporate lawyers. 
And I thought, you know, I'll see it. Why not? Summer associate. And uh, I liked it. I found that I liked big firm corporate practice and I really did not like the litigation. So oh, that's ironic. Uh, um, given where <laughs> yeah, given so when I, <laughs> when I went back in um in as a first year, I was a corporate associate. So I was yeah. a corporate associate at a Wall Street firm for a year. Well, that it's you know, I think that's good actually. Uh, sometimes students ask me whether they should bother with the business courses if they're gonna be a litigator. And I say, Are you kidding? <laughs> You have to understand that material, and it's so basic to our legal system. It's so basic to our economy. You know how we aggregate capital and how we, uh, you know, create entities to to be productive, uh, whether they're for profit or nonprofit. It's so basic. Judge Judith Kay was one of the great judges of the 20th century, and she was the chief justice. You don't call her that, but the chief judge of the Court of Appeals of New York, which is the highest court in New York, and she was the longest serving chief, I think, of that court in, in history, a very, very, very distinguished person, a wonderful person. And um, can you talk about that experience? Sure. You know, I was sitting in Cahill Gordon as a corporate associate and David Siegel, that professor I worked for, called me and remembered I had been interested in a clerkship and said, you know, send your resume to Judge Casey. He's looking for a clerk. So I thought, why not? You, you know, maybe you meet a court of appeals judge. This is, you know, it's not a bad thing. And she hired me and she did two year clerkships. And much, much later, she told me, you know, I really never wanted to hire you, but David Siegel just would stop <laughs> calling me, which is a nice lesson about how you can really help yeah. someone's career. But uh, so I went to work for her. She was an amazing, as you pointed out, David, a, a great judge, but some background. Um, she had gone to Columbia undergrad, graduated when she was 20, also wanted to go into journalism went to work for a paper and um, they didn't want women reporters. So they signed her to the social page um, and she was covering weddings and went to law school. One of the few women in her class at NYU graduated at the top of her class, um, had really challenging experiences coming out, getting a job in a big New York firm, went to Sullivan and Cromwell, eventually became one of the first equity, women equity partners at a major New York firm. Um, and then became, amazingly, when you think about it, in 1983, the first woman uh, appointed to the New York Court of Appeals. And then, of course, the first woman chief judge. And she was, I, I try to tell my clerk sometimes, really an amazing person. It, it's hard to explain. She loved the law. She worked, you know, we worked hard. Um, we worked hard. We worked long hours and she worked harder. Um, she was here when you got here, you know, we left together really. She loved the law. She was curious about the law, um, but she also had a great uh, understanding of the process from her work as a civil litigator and an understanding also of where she didn't have the experience on the criminal side and what she needed to do there. And it really um, an inspiration how she could balance all of that uh, with a love of the institution and a real concern for the parties and the human toll cases would take and uh, a, a desire to really make the whole process better, which I clerked for her at the end of her time as an associate judge. She then later went on to be chief and as chief judge of New York, you wear two hats and you also run the entire court system, which is more than a full-time job. Yeah. And um, she did a lot of great work on that side too in setting up specialized courts, um, drug treatment courts and trafficking courts and really 
took an interest in, in that side of the house as well. So really an amazing person, very lucky uh, to have had the opportunity to work with her for those years. So you came out of that clerkship and did you go right into the U.S. Attorney's Office at that point? What else would you do after, you know, being a corporate lawyer and going to a regional state school and working for yeah. a guy who wrote the CPLR textbook and clerking for the state judge? So, yeah. you know, I, I knew someone who had my clerkship spot before me who went uh, and became a friend who went up to the Northern District of New York and, and was an AUSA there. And it sounded like a great job. I wanted to stay in Manhattan. Uh, I applied to SDNY, Southern District, um, and my first, you know, you do rounds of interviews, and my very first interview there, senior AUSA, late from court, late for the interview, obviously unhappy with the court proceeding, pulls out my resume, looks at it, and says, um, I see, very impressive, I see you worked for Professor Siegel. I said, yeah, you know, I helped him on his edition of the textbook on New York Civil Practice. He goes, that means absolutely nothing around here. <laughs> Why don't you apply to the Manhattan DA? <laughs> I thought, you know, it was liberating. I thought I'll never get yeah. that job. <laughs> so, uh, but I did. And uh, it really, uh, it was, it, it, we can talk about my time there, but a, a great office. You have that experience. I mean, it's, uh, it was really something at that time I thought I, I, I wanted to do. I wanted to see at that level. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get, get an offer there. So from 1992 to 2001, uh, you were first a, a young prosecutor, and then you were an experienced prosecutor in the nature of those offices. Uh, there's a lot of turnover. Uh, and you handled uh, some very significant cases. Uh, people may not remember that the World Trade Center was bombed uh, in the early 90s before it was uh, destroyed. Uh, into you know 9/11, and uh, one one of the first of the sort of modern terrorism cases came out of that. And you you worked on that case, and there were several others. Can you can you give us uh, some sense of those cases and what your role was? And, uh, I will just cut me off if I go on too long because we could talk won't. for hours about those. Um, but right, you're, you know, 1993 there was a bombing uh, of the trade center in the parking garage underneath the trade center. At that time the bomb went off, I was in the office maybe four or five months. I was a very junior, and you know the rule, <laughs> the life of a junior AUSA um, in a big office. So um, I had an office on the floor where the senior people were who were now starting to investigate that. It was very early. They got breaks in that case. And I was, I used to get in early, and I had an office next to one of those prosecutors and he called me and was like you know can you come in and do a search warrant for us I was like sure um, I had never done a search warrant <laughs> so I rushed in um, we we did this search warrant I I pulled in Lev Dassin who later became my criminal chief when I was U.S. attorney and he started with me in the office we did these search warrants and we come back and we're in the, bring them to the federal building the FBI where these people were camped out then um, and they were like okay thanks and they were sitting in the lobby. I remember this thinking, you know, how do we get back upstairs? Um, and he's like, I have an idea. We went in the store down there. We bought all this food and soft drinks and we went back up. We were like, I thought you guys would be hungry. And we never left. And uh, they put us on that trial team. Four of us went, two senior and then Liv Dassin and myself. And at first they told us, you know, you guys are in the office five minutes. You're not getting any witnesses. I'm like, all right. 
And we wound up, the government wound up calling 200 witnesses in that case, and they couldn't do it. So Lev and I had about 25 witnesses each at the end of the day. I called my first um, witness in, in a trial in that, in the Trade Center bombing. And I have the sketch in my office here of, you know, it was a Secret Service agent who had been hurt in the bombing, I had cars in the garage. And it was really an amazing experience, but a great one because unlike the usual track, I really got to see top prosecutors investigating a major case and learn from them. And if you look at and you step back and there are very interesting stories of the trial, but if you step back and you look at the development of prosecuting terrorism in criminal prosecutions in, in Article III courts, those ser the series of cases in Southern District starting then where you know, there were no experienced prosecutors or agents. The JTTF was a, a backwater um, Joint Terrorist Task Force, and the laws had never been changed in really um, in ways that address that specific type of threat. Um, that all happened over the 90s, those cases starting with Trade Center, and then there was an airline bombing plot out of Southeast Asia. There was the Sheikh Rahman case and then culminating in the embassy bombings in East Africa in 1998, really developed, I think, a model, and many people worked on those, of that type of prosecution and the issues with FISA, you know, the intelligence wiretaps, the uh, Classified Information Procedures Act that were developed, you know, uh, overseas witnesses, search issues, um, all types of uh, extraterritorial issues really were litigated there over that period in that series of five or six cases. So when the embassy bombing trial ended, the final verdicts came in in July of 2001. You know, we had indicted Osama bin Laden on other charges, uh, conspiracy charges. We had indicted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed for an airline bombing plot. And the, really the pendulum had swung very far over towards criminal prosecution of international terrorism. Two months later, I left the office right after that verdict, but two months later, 9-11 took place, which really changed the landscape uh, in many ways. From uh, assuming you would prosecute to more of a kind of a military response, right. I, I suppose. You know, we had been looking for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed for years, um, and Osama bin Laden as well. And, you know, there was never an issue then that they were gonna come, they're still not. Have, you know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed still hasn't been tried. Um, so it really changed the, the, the view. I think when I came back as a U.S. attorney, and we can talk about that in due time, but that started to swing back, not for the, you know, the, the Gitmo prosecutions, but in proactively prospective cases started to see more and new laws had been passed, material support statutes had come and, and other things. So I did see that start to change, but it really was a, a such a change in the in the way the cases were approached. I mean, just to pause here for a minute to think about uh, you, you had you you come out of your clerkship, uh, which is a rather academic kind of day to day sort of experience because you're 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 doing the sorts of things that a that a law student does. You're preparing memos and you're reading appellate cases and you're thinking about precedents. And five months later. You're working on the biggest case in the country, and it's—I'm uh, sure it's exciting. It's also scary in some respects, and uh, you don't want to screw it up. And you know, it's a lot of pressure. 
and people have been hurt and it's yeah. uh, of national importance. It's, it's pretty breathtaking when you think about it. It was, it was, you know, you were, I guess at the time you're working so hard and even on trial, you know, it's, uh, you're so consumed by it. Um, you're just trying to get just things together for the next day's court, you know, but uh, <clears throat> you, you it, it's hard to realize that the impact that it's, it's having. And, and again, it was so new. So much of it was so new uh, at that time. It's hard to imagine that now, but there were six people killed in that bombing. Um, and I remember at a, one of the early detention hearings, the line that made it into the paper was the prosecutor getting up and saying, this is the single most devastating act of terrorism ever committed on US soil. So imagine you know, the perspective being so different. You're right. And then by the time I finished that trial, then I went, I did other work in the office, but then I did this airline bombing trial and I was going overseas a lot. And I was really the lead on, on that case. There were two of us. I remember I was in the Philippines negotiating an extradition and I'm in the office like two and a half years. And, uh, you know, we get this guy, we get him on this plane and I'm thinking, you know, I, this is the best job in the world. And, you know, yeah. The work was great. Um, you really felt like you were, you were making a difference. And as you said, you know, you always had in mind that people were killed and injured and families were devastated by these, these attacks. And, and you really felt like you were contributing in a, in a meaningful way. So, yeah, I, I in that part of my career, I, I look back as as really so tremendously rewarding. So in two thousand and one, before nine uh, eleven, which you couldn't have foreseen, you left the U.S. Attorney's Office and you became the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Export Enforcement, and uh, those are our export controls on technology and that sort of thing, uh, which is in many respects related to work that white collar prosecutors like you had none but can you tell us uh, about that job we had finished the embassy case and i did with pat fitzgerald the last part of it and and i really needed to leave it was it was time i had no party affiliation but the administration had changed and they were looking for an assistant secretary in that shop which was a you know senate confirmed job but they wanted somebody who had dealt with the intelligence agencies because there was overlap and, and relationships with that given the nature of the export issues. So I went down and I, I interviewed for the White House, which is interesting. Um, and they, they offered me that position, which was great. And for me, what I, I thought of it, when I was in the US Attorney's Office for eight and a half, nine years, whatever, I was never a supervisor. I always was a line assistant. I loved the cases, I loved the trials, um, the investigations, and I stayed in that role for my entire career there as an AUSA. This was the opportunity to, to manage something, you know, to run it. Uh, and export enforcement, about 500 people, uh, 120 special agents, federal investigators, very specific thing lodged in the Commerce Department, which isn't your usual platform for an enforcement agency. So it's a little off the beaten track and the cases are difficult. There's also civil penalties, et cetera. But it really gave me an opportunity, one, to manage generally, which is such a different role. And then also to think about enforcement policy and initiatives and how you can use various tools you have um, to you know, change the way the agency was approaching the mission. So I enjoyed that part of it. And you know, they had some interesting jurisdiction over uh, material that was going to China, high-tech uh, computers, uh, uh, state sponsors of terrorism controls. So, you know, high-tech 
night vision type equipment. It was uh, it was interesting for me to to explore that in a, in a law enforcement agency that was very contained. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. Well, you went from from that work <laughs> sort of. You you go from the <laughs> frying pan to the fire and back to the frying pan. It seems so. You then became acting commissioner of the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, as it was then known, and it was part of the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. And then you took what was called INS into its new home in the Department of Homeland Security. So this is post nine eleven, mm -hmm. and now it was called ICE, <laughs> and you became the assistant secretary for for ICE. So how did that all happen? Yeah, so I guess it's, you're right. It's kind of like going from a clerkship into <laughs> prosecuting the trade center, <laughs> like going from yeah. the Commerce Department to the INS. But, uh, you know, again, you have to think back about the time. And it was, you know, such a time of change. So 9-11 takes place and there's this major reorganization of the federal government. And there's all kinds of investigations and reports coming out. INS is really taking a lot of heat. Um, for what they were perceiving to be their failure to, you know, police the border, et cetera. So I, I get a call to go over to the White House, the people who had, you know, the White House personnel hired me to, to meet Commerce, and I go over there, and they tell me, okay, here's what we'd like you to do. We'd like you to take over INS, break it up, basically your trustee in bankruptcy, and you're going to unwind INS, you're going to take the pieces, you're going to push them over the line into this new department. They had a statute, right? DHS, Department of Homeland Security, standing up. You take INS, you break it apart, you push it over the line. And if you are standing at that time, we'll give you, you know, you'll, you may get the enforcement agency that comes out of that. And at that time, it was contemplated it would just be immigration enforcement. So I was like, sure, I'll do that. And they're like, really? But I, 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 it was a challenge. I went back. They put me in as acting commissioner of the INS, which, you know, we just said Commerce had about 500 people. I think INS at that time had 32, 34,000 people all over the world. A lot of attention, not good, was being paid to that agency at that time. They had all kinds of other internal issues. And it was a, it was a difficult agency to manage for anyone. Um, the lines were all tangled. You had you had services, you had border patrol, you had investigations, you had, you know, service people supervising agents, you had vice versa, you know, agents. And so it had to be unwound. And so I spent, I say, three or four months doing that. In that time, I mean, when I look back at this time in my career again, I, I think this was the most challenging but the most creative time. Well, you couldn't stay away too long from the U.S. <laughs> Attorney's Office. So in 2005, you become the U.S. Attorney, and that's like a big deal. You know, SDNY, anybody who's seen uh, the show Billions knows that <laughs> yeah, you just were, like that. <laughs> yeah, just like that. You know, that's a very significant position in the U.S. Justice Department, but also you know, overall in federal law enforcement. It's a leader, real leadership position. How, how did that come about? That's my, I, I used to, you know, Mary Jo was my boss for my time as an AUSA. And one time we were working on something, you know, we're dealing with the FBI and she had to go to something and I stayed in her office and I was dealing with it. And then she came the next day and I'm like, you know, I'm comfortable behind the desk there, <laughs> <She always reminded laughs> me, um, which of course isn't true. So I was, it was second term of uh, W. Bush, President Bush. And um, 
that slot was open. James Comey was DAG now. He had had it, um, the Senate confirmed job before. You know, it, you know, the process is just, you know, I went, I, at that time it was Governor Pataki had a committee. I went to the Justice Department, I interviewed. I interviewed with White House counsel. Um, and you wait around and then you read the paper and this one's up and uh, you know, and all the stories. And I got the call and, you know, I, uh, went to talk to Senator Schumer and <laughs> it was, uh, and it happened. And it was, you know, it was really in, in, in so many ways, really like going home. Um, you know, I had ICE and, and, and the Homeland Security Department, you know, we had badges that said established 2003. It was like a bar in the city, right? <laughs> like, um, and, uh, you know, going back to the U.S. Attorney's Office, they have a book on the coffee table, you know, going back to 1798 or whatever it is. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the traditions and that. But when I got there, James Comey said to me, you know, it's it's a great job. You know, you know, you, you're going to love it. But let's, let me tell you, it's very much like being the dean of Harvard. All the alumni <laughs> think they can run the college better than you, which is true. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I bet that is true because there are all these former U.S. attorneys running around New York City and in prominent positions <laughs> and all the AUSAs uh, and all the AUSAs that's true no, no. so uh, you had a you had a great run as U.S. attorney and then in 09 the pendulum swung the other way and <laughs> you uh, you were out so uh, you returned to private practice you went to uh, the Kirkland firm while you were there, you got involved with with FIFA and yeah. the, the International Soccer League. And tell us about that, because I, we won't be able to go into all the gory details. But no. that, that was almost like being U.S. attorney again. It, they, they were looking, they going through a series of reforms at that time, I don't know, 2012, I think. And they had just put in place a very strong ethics code, which was done by this outside independent group that they brought in and professor from Switzerland, and they were looking for someone to head up the investigative arm of that. Um, and then they had a, you know, an adjudicatory arm where you would bring these cases and they would kind of get tried. I went over and, and I interviewed in FIFA for this job, and I knew nothing. I, I joked in that interview, like the only soccer game I had seen up to that point in my life was U12, like my daughter. I, I didn't know FIFA. I didn't know the U.S. had bid on the World Cup. I didn't know Qatar got the World Cup. I didn't know any of that. Um, so I think that's why they hired me. Um, so I, I came in and I had a deputy and a, and a committee. Um, and the code actually was a very good one. And it gave me a lot of authority, including, very importantly, the ability to initiate cases, which the Olympic Committee investigators don't have. They have to be referred. So um, it was doing good work. I had cases where executive committee members were disciplined, and but I decided I would open an investigation into the World Cup bidding for the 18 and 22 <laughs> World Cups because we had been getting different types of things in. And I did that. Uh, I spent, I don't know, a year, I guess, investigating the bid teams. I couldn't investigate the US, my deputy did because of the obvious conflict that was in the code but i also couldn't investigate the russian bid because i'm banned from going to russia over my prior prosecutorial work so that went to my deputy but we put together a very thorough and comprehensive and i think fair report on 
issues related to that bidding process. And I submit that report. And then the adjudicatory side, which was also an independent head, it was a German, sitting German trial judge, issued a summary of my whatever, I don't know how many pages, 600 pages, I don't know, 10 page summary, 20 page, which I felt didn't capture <laughs> the important aspects of it. And anyway, I, this public, I, so is the report now, I think. I appealed it, appealed that issuance of the summary, and I surprisingly lost, and then I left. But it was really a fascinating thing because I did travel around the world. I did learn how much attention football gets worldwide. When I took that job, people said to me, you're not going to believe the scrutiny and the, the light that's going to be on. And it was, especially, you know, in England, I went to England while I, while the World Cup report was controversy was brewing and I delivered an ABA speech, you know, the, some group in the ABA in this very old building, you know, it was a pretty standard kind of meeting, but the British press were lying to the gallery, you know, they, they didn't know what to do with this because no one covers this meeting usually, right? And I gave a thing on transparency, you know. As I'm walking out, the British press is screaming and they're like following me out of this building and I get outside and it's raining, of course, in London and it's raining and I walk 10 feet and they all stop. I turned around, I'm like, this is what it takes to get rid of the British press. You know, walk out. <laughs> a little rain. <laughs> um, you know, I had been involved in high profile cases and high profile reorganization of government and, and agencies that got a lot of attention, good and bad. But uh, it, I never had seen anything like the coverage of the soccer. That's amazing. So, you know, now we've co we come to the time when you became a judge and uh, you, you were appointed by the governor and you go on to the high court. How did that happen? You know, it's uh, in New York, it's, <clears throat> as you said, it's an appointed position and it's actually very formal. So you apply um, and there's a commission that by law interviews all, they do a cut, they interview candidates and they come up with a list of seven judges and the governor has to pick off of the list. So at the time I interviewed, Judge Kay was the chair of that commission. Um, she encouraged me to apply. I was interviewed and I got on the list first for chief judge and then another opening came up getting the chief judge and they rolled over the, the list to that, uh, your application to that. And then I had that slot and it actually turned out, Chief Judge, uh, Judge Kay passed away right before I was nominated, but it actually turned out I have her associate seat, which is oh, nice. makes it even more how beautiful. Yeah, but, how uh, lovely is that? You know, you go through the process. So in New York, you then interview with all the bar associations when you're on the list. Uh, and then the governor called and I went over, I spoke with him and he nominated me. And then it's a Senate, state Senate confirmation, but it's a different process there than down in DC. So did it feel like the right time uh, to you? I, I suppose the answer is obviously yes, but I'm just, I'm sort of interested in that. You know, it's funny and I never was offered a federal judgeship, but you know, they talk to you and you're in the US attorneys, would you be? And, and, and one, I, I didn't think I had really the temperament to be a trial judge, God bless, but it's, you know, really a lot of patience. And uh, I had seen trials, but um, I always had a great, you know, respect and, and affection for the New York Court of Appeals and, and, and an understanding, although I had been away from state practice for the most part, but a real understanding of the institution, having seen it for a couple of years. 
inside. You know, if I thought about this is a, I thought a night a step I wanted to take at this point in my career. I did. Um, this was the landing that I wanted. It was a very strange feeling. You know, you get confirmed. I was on the bench the next morning, um, wow. walking through that courthouse, which is beautiful. You know, Cardozo sat in there, and walking onto that bench, it really for a moment, luckily your last as the junior judge, I stopped, you know, I really was a very, very moving experience coming out onto that bench the first time. I bet. You know, I think students would like to know how you organize your chambers and how you use law clerks and whether they can work for you. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Um, Duke? No, but uh, I have four law clerks. I try to run chambers the same way that Kay ran chambers. So the main work is the docket, I split those cases up. I try to do it so, you know, to the extent I can, people get writings and, you know, opinions because that's why we're here. It's the most fun. And then they work up as you would expect, bench memos. They put together bench books for me, relevant authority. Um, at the same time, they're doing those cases, um, reading, um, reading the briefs, I'm reading cases. And to me, that bench memo isn't so much the product as the process because I like to talk about the cases. So one thing with the pandemic and we've been out of chambers, I really like being here. I like being able to go in offices and Kate did the same and you know, what are you thinking? What are you hearing? I encourage them to speak to other clerks and get their thoughts. So I have an idea of how these are being reported in other chambers. Uh, and then as we get closer to argument, I'm reading the bench memo to prep. We think of questions. What do we wanna know? What are we hearing? And then if I'm drawing a case, we do a report you know, recommendation. And if we write the opinion, then I let them draft, take the first draft, and then we'll pass it back and forth a lot and work on it and circulate. And then we're doing changes to other opinions, trying to get comments in on other people's drafts, or we're dissenting. And that's really the day-to-day work. With Kay, the way I really learned from her, she was a fantastic writer and editor, but she, we would type, give it to her and she would take the hard draft and then write in a blue marker her changes and then you would enter them. And you know, when you first started clerking, you got a lot of blue back on you. And you could see over time, you know, as you learned her style and you got better at your job that it, it went down. But you really learned how she thought, how she edited from that process. Now we do these red lines and we got, you know, I, I hope it's still helpful that way. But, um, and then we have, there are other work streams, the most important being criminal leave applications. And in New York, um, one judge decides the application. So we split them up. I get a seventh of the docket and my clerks do them. I don't assign them, they'll do them and work them in. And then they'll write up short, less formal memos. The papers are less, I'll look at those and we'll discuss and we'll make a decision on granting or denying. And if it's an interesting case, we can get the parties on the line and have like a mini hearing on, you know, what are your issues? Are they preserved, et cetera? Um, and, and that's, you know, you have people coming here. These are convictions. It's important work. And, you know, so, you know, those are probably at the next level of a, a day-to-day operations here. But it's mainly the cases. And as you said, it's, it's very similar. Kay used to say it's lawyer heaven. I think it's almost like law school heaven. You know, you work on these things, you get very engaged in a particular discipline and an issue, and then it's done. 
And I remember when I got here, I was talking to judges and they would say, oh, did I write? And I'm like, how do you not know if you wrote a decision? You know, I'm going to remember <laughs> every entry I do. Now I'll say to a clerk, I'll be like, did we write that? Did yeah. <laughs> That's um, funny. I can tell you really enjoy it. That's great. Yeah, it really it's wonderful. Well, we're, we're almost out of time. I, I like to ask all of our judges on judgment calls this last question. I think we all know the answer to it, but has there been any judge, past or present, uh, who you would describe as your uh, judicial model? You know, obviously we hit on the two so far. So I would say, you know, as a model, it would be Kay, Judge Kay, because I worked with her and had so much respect and admiration for her and the way she judges are so different and I'm sure she would like some things I do and not like some things I do, but um, I, I, the process and the approach and I hope that love for what you do and the institution, you know, I think she is a real model that I saw and I was lucky enough to work with. Um, and then Jackson, Justice Jackson, I just, I love. Um, it's just a, a figure in history and really great. And, you know, the fact that he went to Old Law School, it's either him or President McKinley, two choices. I always love uh, Justice Jackson's line when uh, about grand gestures that don't mean anything. He said he would describe them as a munificent bequest in a pauper's will. But uh, Judge Judge Garcia, this was not a pauper's will here today. This was a delightful discussion, and uh, I so enjoyed hearing about your really amazing your amazing career and all the um, the wonderful service that you've given to to the nation it's really remarkable and and so laudable so thank you for your service and thank you for being here uh, with us at duke uh, for judgment calls um, thank and thank you thank you to our audience as well thank you thank Judge you Garcia. david i enjoyed it judgment calls is produced by the bolch judicial institute at duke university find us online at judicialstudies.duke.edu